Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... What is my life for? You know, like, is my life for my career? Is my life for getting ahead? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and we are joined today by Mike and Alicia Hernan from the Messy Family Project. Thank you very much for joining us. It is great to be with you, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having us. Mike and Alicia have been working in family ministry for many years now, and uh, you all have how many kids? Just 10. Just 10. Okay. All right. Well, I know you you must get that italicized from people all the time, right? (laughs) It's fun when we're in, you know, if I take the five youngest to a store or something, you know, people are like, are these all of your kids? And to be like, actually, this is only half of my children. (laughs) That's always fun. You you only know the half of them. (laughs) Exactly. Do you ever get kind of more serious criticism from people, maybe letting their sort of ideas about either population control or just their ideas of what a family should be coming through? Yeah, you know, it's so funny because when I would get together with friends and people would like compare their notes of like comments and things like that, that's that's not something that's ever really happened to me. Oh, good. I, I don't know if I give off a like don't mess with me vibe or oh, something. Yeah. But... She's one tough cookie, man. had or maybe it's just because I'm I I take even comments that people would say are these all your kids or god bless you I usually say he obviously has you know like maybe I just take everything positively if even if people mean it negatively Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like I just I I just feel it's it's a wonderful thing to have a beautiful vibrant family and I'm very proud of my children so any, any comments people would make, I always just assume the best, assume the best and yeah. just smile or laugh or make it into a joke or something. Now, like I, that, I, I, I spent about 10 years in politics, so I have had a couple of people yeah, make yeah, snide yeah. remarks uh, about it, but I usually just turn it around as a quip and, and yes, we know how, where these kids come from. And, and, and if you think TV, well, this, I'll, I'll keep the clean version. <laughs> I'll, yes, I'll we leave have it a TV. Yes, yes, we have a TV, and if you think those two things are comp- comparable, you're you're doing one of them wrong. So. <laughs> one question to start off, and you probably get this a lot in your in your ministry. What are some of the biggest challenges that uniquely impact raising a family that's on the bigger side? Oh goodness, yes. There's, I definitely. <laughs> we did a podcast. Okay, so we did a podcast on large families, and one thing that I kind of pushback against is people who may treat having more children lightly in the sense of there is certainly a kind of like this pendulum swings to like one side in the world says don't have any children to have two kids but we can also swing to the other side and people just say oh just have as many kids just you know just go ahead and just go for it you know and and yes there there is a certain of course, being open to life at all times, you know, doing, being in union with our Lord and that, and being who he's called us to be, but we need to do that soberly because God doesn't cause, the church doesn't ask us simply to give life to children. But if you look in the documents, we have a duty to give life to children and to educate them. So it's not just a matter of, oh, you just have those kids and and therefore, these kids are all going to get me, you know, whatever, a higher place in heaven. Now, they may do that, <laughs> but, <laughs> For sure. not, but not without my effort and me being changed. So I really do see having a big, having a large family as a certain calling. And it also comes with a very sober responsibility because it's a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And I, you know, I'm so grateful that God has blessed us with the children we have. But it is a lot of work. Yeah, and it's and it's a challenge to make sure that our kids don't feel like they're just part of the herd. Absolutely. You know, that they are individually, uniquely known and loved and special. You know what I mean? And I think that that is a challenge when you have larger uh, a larger number of kids. There's a beauty to having a few kids and there's a beauty to having large kids. Everybody's got a different uh, flavor. And that's the beauty of being Catholic. It's not just one size fits all. It's right. even with our 10th child, we thought, you know, right. have nine, get one free. Yeah. No, no. She's given us a run yes. for our money. Yeah. 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 She's given us a lot of challenges. So <laughs> the, the economy of scale doesn't kick in until the 20th or the 50th kid. Though. No. <laughs> now I do have to say that, that the biggest shift for us was going from uh, two kids to three kids. Yeah. Okay. And that was the hardest shift 
for us. And it was maybe mental game. You know, we, we move from man to man to zone defense or oh, yeah. whatever it might be. But 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 then after that, it actually did get quite a bit easier because there was an economy of scale. Okay. Uh, but again, each kid has their own challenges. But once you get the, the first couple going in the right direction, it really does have a big impact. I will say since I graduated high school, some switch flipped in my brain where anytime I saw a group of three or more children, I just automatically saw them as a herd and having no individuality. Yes. So what is, for someone like me who thinks about the challenges of parenthood as a future major obstacle, or somebody who is a parent who struggles with that, what's something they can do to unflip that switch Right. And I'll start with the idea for the parent, right? So it, it does become um, draining sometimes to have lots of little kids and, you know, they're, they're all climbing all over, messing things up. And as they get older, um, we are required really to get to know them individually. And not that we aren't from the very early days, but we, uh, we really encourage parents to take special time uh, with each individual child to get to know them. Everything, you know, and, and for me, I have a bad memory. I would just write little things down like, hey, what was their um, their, their favorite color, their their best friend, their, their the movie they loved? And and just kind of treating them as if they were a an interesting subject, you know, because they, you know, like that you would study, that you would get to know, that you were curious mm -hmm. about who they were, what are their likes and dislikes? Because one, our primary role is to love. And that's how kids know they're loved by being known and loved. You can't, the, the growth in uh, love only happens when you deepen that knowledge. And so even from the outside, getting to know, if you see a herd go by a, a, of kids at the museum or at the zoo, mm -hmm. they are acting like they're just one big, but when you get to know an individual mm -hmm. um, and whether that's in your family or from the outside, that's mm -hmm. the way to kind of start changing and recognizing, well, in a certain way, we're all part of a herd, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but we, we need to know that there are individuals in the midst of that too. And, you know, I saw this study once that I thought was really interesting is that it taught, it pointed out that um, people who are very successful parents are not necessarily the people who know the most about children or people who have had even experience with children at all. The most successful parents are those who are good with people. You know, if you as a, as a man, as a woman, have developed healthy friendships, good relationships, you have a healthy marriage, you're gonna be a great parent. That's right. Yeah, maybe you don't know the foods to introduce at the right time at what age, you know? <laughs> maybe you don't understand Common Core, like it's okay, like it's all you don't need fine. To, maybe you shouldn't know. <laughs> yeah. like, all of that is fine. But if you, as you prepare to be a parent, as you look at the vocation of marriage, really, becoming a healthy person yourself, right? And having that relationship with the Lord, but then also really learning how to have good relationships. And really that's what parenting is about, right? It's just about forming strong relational ties with your children who will not be little forever because we have right now, we have five adult children. We have two married children, three grandchildren, another grandchild on the way, you know, it's a wonderful time. And I look at my adult children and they are my friends now, you know, like my little children, obviously I'm, I'm always going to be their parents and it's a different type of relationship, but having adult children who we can like have a party with, you know, and hang out with and go on vacation with is such a joy. And we will have that relationship with them for the rest of our lives. And, and just to add to that, Andrew, if I could, the idea of having my adult son and seeing him as a father uh, doing things differently maybe than we did, but following a lot of the same traditions, that is a powerful, it's it, it's actually humbling to see how, you know, we are, we are affecting even our grandchildren that we didn't know existed. And we were, we were 20 somethings and had no idea what we were doing, getting married, right? We probably had no business getting married. Uh, <laughs> there is no manual, but it, it, it actually changes us and makes us, I think, both better people uh, compared to where we were, but it also is so much fun. And the joy is, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot in the beginning, but there's even more as they get older. To see those echoes that you didn't even know you were creating what at the time. Yeah. It's, profound. it's really amazing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
The vast majority of people, according to the U.S. Census, 76% of men and 84% of women by age 40 end up going on to have kids. It is more likely than not. And yet a lot of people growing up don't think of themselves as preparing to have kids mm -hmm. um, and hamper their future selves by not developing certain habits or something like that. Is there something in particular uh, that you would recommend that people who are very remotely preparing for parenthood to start working on? Self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice, 100%. We, so we do ongoing mentoring with one-on-one um, -on -one mentoring with couples. And we hear this a lot from young parents. And I think that it's part of the natural process of holiness, right? Like marriage is a vocation. Marriage is a path to holiness. And as we grow in holiness, part of that growth is the turning from ourselves to God and from ourselves to others and really laying down our lives for other people. And as we talk to these young parents, just that transition from my kids are messing my stuff. Like my kids drew all over my new car, you know, like, like my, I have, when I come home from work, I can't just sit down and have a beer and watch a show and watch the news. You know, like my wife needs me, my kids need me, um, even moms, like when my husband comes in or even when she comes home from work, like you don't have that me time right away. And, and there is a natural, beautiful process of self-sacrifice and holiness that happens, which I think would be easier if as a single person, you were voluntarily learning self-sacrifice. Now I have to say, Nothing prepares you, you know, as the, at the same level, at the same level you know, as, as having a baby and being woken up three times a night, like, you know, nothing can totally prepare you. But at least if you have that mindset of I am not living my life for myself, I am living for others in whatever capacity that means for you as a single person. Like, I think every single person would have to figure that out for themselves, but just kind of keeping that principle in mind, I yeah. think would be good. Just to double on that, it's it, I think it comes out of two things, identity and mission. Identity, understanding who you are as a son and daughter. Uh, understand that before you're a husband, before you're a, a, a husband, wife, mom, or dad, you're first a son and daughter. Yeah. And ultimately, that is son and daughter of God, right? So getting clear what that means, not just theologically or intellectually, but in the core of your being. And then second is really what you said, which is really about mission. It's like our right. lives... Are not for ourselves, you know. And so, it, as a someone who isn't married or somebody who isn't parenting, I think it's it, the best preparation is like doing mission work, going out and serving others, get developing the habits of the heart that my life is about giving away. The gifts that I have are about giving it away and sharing with others. That will breathe life into your marriage, will breathe life into your parenting uh, in the future, and it's perfect preparation. Yeah, and really just thinking about what is my life for. You know, like, is my life for my career? Is my life for getting ahead? Or is my life for family? Every man is called to be a father and every woman is called to be a mother. And that might be spiritual or That's that right. might be natural. It's in our psyche to do that. So finding ways that we can live that out, even before we're married, thinking of ourselves that way. That's that right. We have a gift and a power that this world needs. In our next episode, we will continue with part two of our interview of Mike and Alicia Harnan. But in the meantime, Kara is joining us to talk about one of the Oscar frontrunners. Welcome back, Kara. Always good to be here. You may have heard about the film Minari, which came out in 2020, is partially in the Korean language and partially in English, and is highly touted for Oscar consideration. And by the time you're hearing this episode, uh, may have already won some uh, Academy Awards. It was written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung, and Kara and I both uh, watched it and are ready to talk about it. For those of you who don't know, it takes place in the 1980s and centers around a Korean immigrant family, the Yi family, who are moving not from Korea, but from California to their new home in rural Arkansas, which is a big change of pace 
for the family. The father, Jacob, and the mother, Monica, moved to a double-wide trailer in rural Arkansas with their two kids, Anne and David, and eventually the kid's grandmother, Monica's mother, who does not have an anglicized name. Yeah, her, her name is Sunja, although they just pretty much call her grandma. So these five members of the E family are trying to adjust to life in rural Arkansas. And they go through several ups and downs uh, related to making a living, starting a farm, um, and how to fit into 1980s rural Arkansas society. And the main conflict of the, the movie centers around the challenges related to starting this farm and what the different members of the family think should happen regarding the farm and how big a role the dad, Jacob's, efforts should play in supporting the family. So there are kind of two main relationships that we're going to start out by talking about in terms of how this family attempts to live out the call to love. So one, one relationship is... That between the husband and wife, between Jacob and Monica, and then the other relationship is between the son and the grandmother, David and Sunja. So Jacob and Monica have several disagreements, which we'll get into later. Uh, and then David and Sunja, they start out disagreeing, but eventually their relationship changes. And even though the kid is, what, five, six years old? Yeah, it's not entirely clear to me how old he is. Or his older sister, who, oh, yeah. you know, as always there, but not really yeah, there. And the, and the poor the, older sister. And the, and the sister's just there, uh, being responsible and not requiring very much attention. <laughs> as is the case with sometimes the older sibling. Yeah. One thing I, I feel like we should give people a warning that, you know, some spoilers will be shared here. Definitely yes. would suggest watching the movie because we're going to kind of get into the plot and what happens. But it's funny that you framed it up as being about Monica and Jacob because I had a hard time as I was thinking about it. I was like, is this movie more about the parents or is it more about David and the grandma and their relationship? Which if you've seen the trailer, they have a hilarious little clip where he's basically telling her you're not a real grandma because you wear <laughs> men's underwear and you don't make cookies, which is just like the best idea of what a four-year-old thinks a grandmother is. <laughs> yeah, and his his grandmother is like teaching him and his sister this card game and stealing money out of the collection basket at church. Like she's a total hustler. I love hustler grandma. I don't think of her as Sunja. I just think of her as that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> she's, she's a riot. And you think before grandma shows up, oh, she's going to be super critical and super strict and she shows up and she's like here kids let me try that mountain dew that mountain water that's another <laughs> so great i really I, when they first came we're like oh no she's totally gonna think it's disgusting and then you see her in the next scene she's like oh give me some of that mountain water i was like it's so fantastic <laughs> yeah it's it's funny how quickly the grandmother who speaks the least english out of anybody in the family adapts so easily to mountain dew and what it represents <laughs> Back to my question, it's really interesting to me how much energy is spent on David and his relationship with his grandma. I mean, there's a series of antics that are sort of escalating in intensity because grandma likes Mountain Dew. He, let's say, gives her a cup of something to drink that is not Mountain Dew as a like way to get back at her. Yeah, he, he has a lot of problems early on where he associates grandma moving in with treatment related to his heart condition and one of mm -hmm. the one of the things related to his heart condition is he can't drink mountain dew anymore he has to drink this horrible korean folk remedy which he hates and so he decides to get revenge on grandma by replacing her mountain dew which used to be his mountain dew with, with something he wouldn't want to drink under any circumstances <laughs> but then after that it sort of becomes because grandma responds better than most people would to that sort of thing. She said, no, it was funny. Like, he's not, he's not a bad kid. And he eventually gets to joke around with her about that. And then their relationship really improves. Mm. Well, I think there's also that turning point where, you know, he's really worrying and she basically calms his fears, you know, like, yeah. you know, it's okay. Like, you're not, you're not going to die. And like, you shouldn't, like at your age, you shouldn't be worrying about those things. I feel like they had a really genuine connection where like she is his grandmother i think i think in some ways her like sort of carefreeness hinders their relationship and then that was a moment where she was like i am the adult here and i'm going to reassure you that you're going to be okay yeah and she is at one point like the first person to ever call him strong right because mm, his, yeah. his mother mm -hmm. has largely sheltered him throughout his life especially because of his heart problem she doesn't let him run ever 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, the grandma who is much more freewheeling is more comfortable kind of letting the kid test his limits when she's supervising him. And the, the grandma becomes that that sort of support for him at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good jumping off point for, you know, another theme. And we'll get back to the dual storyline of the parents eventually. But I think it's interesting you mentioned the, sh- the strength because there's definitely another plot line around sort of masculinity and like, I don't want to say coming of age because the father is obviously an adult, but the father is also setting out on his own to fulfill his dream, his dream of having his own farm. And this idea that like he has to make it and it seems to be like for himself because they mention it at a different point in the movie how they had sent a lot of their money that they had earned back to Korea because he's the oldest son. And so they're poor because he's been supporting the family back in Korea. And so having a farm is like his dream to support himself and his family But it also becomes clear that this is about him succeeding. And I don't want to call it like maybe it's maybe it is masculinity, but there's a sort of like knowing that you can be who you are meant to be. Right. He wants to prove that he's strong enough in his understanding to achieve his goal, which he hasn't been allowed to do because he had to support his family earlier on. I think it is more about how they see masculinity versus how masculinity actually is or is not. Mm. Because at the same time that the son is having these health problems that threaten his notion of his own strength, also that dad is having, I don't know if you would call them financial or just life problems that threaten his own conception of his own strength. It's challenged in different ways in the movie. The biggest one is how fanatically focused he is on making this dang farm work in spite of like significant setbacks. And everyone telling him that like the last guy who was there was a total failure. Yeah. So at a certain point, they tell him the last owner of this house tried to make it work here. It didn't work and he killed himself. But also they have a lot of struggle finding water. Uh, He doesn't want to install a big expensive well. He wants to find it himself and make his own well. He has to struggle with trying to do it all on his own versus accepting help uh, from his crazy neighbor, Paul, who we'll get into a little bit later with the thick Coke bottle glasses. Another external manifestation of the dad's masculinity-related fear is the other way they earn income which is sorting chicks, young chickens, between male and female. The female chicks are sorted to eventually lay eggs or become, you know, broiler chickens for food. And the male chicks are sorted for no purpose, and they are just destroyed in a furnace. And it's said in the movie that somebody asks why, and the dad has to be the one to say, male chicks aren't really good for anything. They don't taste good, and they don't lay eggs. So it's no wonder that the dad doesn't want to do this and he wants to do the farm instead because (laughs) this job is like a reminder in his mind that men are inherently useless and doomed, doomed to die, (laughs) basically. (laughs) Well, he says it in that that thing where he's talking to David. He actually says, so we must be useful. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's very explicit. Yeah, we got to be useful because we're we're not pleasing uh, and we don't give life. So that's kind of all we have. So in his mind, I guess there's four possibilities. Tasting good, being pleasing to be around, I guess. Laying eggs, giving life, being useful, or death. Those are the four options for Jacob. And two of those are not available to men at the outset, so that only leaves usefulness and death, (laughs) which is a very dreary, utilitarian way of looking at the world. But that's what you get when you have to worry about the necessities in some cases. Yeah, which is interesting in a way because... I mean, that directly feels like his farm dream is his way of trying to move beyond just fulfilling the necessities. And I think at one point, Monica even says to him, like, why don't we go back to California and we can just make a bunch of money? And my memory of of it is that he is like, you know, it's, it's not just about money. It's about something else. And... I mean, I think it's kind of interesting that it is this fulfillment that is beyond our basic needs, which I, on the one hand, I I empathize with Monica, you know, we've got to have a roof over our head and we've got to pay for things. But on the other hand, we are made for something more. I mean, obviously, well, there's a strong, there's a lot of religious sort of 
themes that come up both explicit and implicit in the in the movie and it sort of feels in some way like this is kind of related to that of like this desire for more meaning and like yeah. i mean i think it, that's like really it obviously can be um disordered but to me his desire for the farm felt really natural to like want something beyond just like my life isn't just i sorted chicks and like made enough money so that my kids could live in America. He has some desire for deeper fulfillment, which is totally understandable. Yeah, I guess so that would be a fifth thing. The usefulness can either be the usefulness one can be split up into two. It can either be providing, you know, putting a roof over people's heads or it can also be some sort of grand statement about my purpose in the world. In neither of these cases is it necessarily made made for love. I don't think Jacob has room in his mind for uh, the notion that we could be made for love. Uh, but this this fifth option, like you're saying, is more like, I have been useful enough in achieving my goals that I have proven myself to be a real man that is somehow more significant than the fact that I will die one day. Is that, mm-hmm. is that, is that a fair? I think, I think that feels about right, yeah. Well, it's interesting, his wife is explicitly Christian and faith-filled, and he seems to sort of stand in opposition to that. I mean, it shows up early that somebody, what's it called, a dowser, where they follow a stick to find water, and he scoffs at the guy. We Koreans, we use our heads, not like these stupid Americans (laughs) who use these dowsers. Um, And so he sort of, I mean, explicitly a number of times is putting the idea of reason or logic ahead of faith. Now, obviously, as Catholics, we believe those things go together, but I think it's kind of an interesting contrast to his wife, who like seems to very explicitly believe something. Yeah, we'll get into his portrayal of Christianity a little bit later, but for the, for the movie's part, it more or less lumps together Christianity with something that's more superstitious, like dousing for water, which apparently works in the movie's <laughs> mind. I don't know. Well, I think that that it's nice in the at the end, it's sort of this like come around. I mean, I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself here, but it c- does come around to say maybe this stuff isn't ridiculous. Yeah. You don't know if they found water when they do oh, it. There's some acknowledgement of the reality of like something beyond yeah. logic. Uh, yeah. And I think it is telling that in his life, his wife is the more religious one. So maybe he does think of it as not manly. And he's constantly challenged by this. There's another scene later in the movie where he sort of sees himself as either excluded or having to exclude other things from his life in order to retain his sense of being a man. So like in the ultrasound scene, there is a scene later on in the movie where the son's heart is scanned via ultrasound to see how his whatever heart defect is doing. And the way that scene is framed there in the ultrasound room, the mom And the sister are there with the ultrasound tech who is also female. And they are scanning the little six-year-old son, David. And even David is in a situation which we more commonly associate with like pregnant women. He's getting the ultrasound and they're looking up at the screen to see the results. And, you know, they're actually getting good news, not about, you know, that there's a baby there, obviously, but that his condition is, you know, going to be improving. So even the son is being sort of symbolically feminized there. And then dad, who has brought like a box of vegetables to try and sell to a distributor, dad is like excluded from this circle of life with his dumb box of doomed vegetables in the corner, in the shadows, like, this isn't my thing, I can't be part of this, or they won't, they won't accept me into this situation. I'm just being kind of forgotten about. Uh, which is the the common fate of all men is to be cast aside. <laughs> well, I mean, in this case, he cast himself aside. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I feel like that's maybe, it, it might be true symbolically. I don't think it's really so much that he felt excluded. Obviously, she gave him the stink eye for bringing his box of vegetables in, which I also understand, like, he's trying to sell them. And he doesn't want them to go bad in a 108-degree car, but <laughs> For him, I think, it's, I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. He sees Mm. himself this way, and so he causes himself to fall into a situation where this is going to happen. I don't know. I feel like maybe that's a secondary effect. I don't know. It just felt like it was more, to me, it felt more like about the fact that he was primarily concerned with the farm, so much so that it caused him to be outside the familial circle. Like, that that was more the symbolism I felt was like, because he's so concerned with the farm... He is now 
like not excluded, but he has stepped outside of the family in a way, which Monica explicitly says later. She was like, you know, you chose the farm over our family in the hospital. Maybe we're saying the same thing in different ways, but it it felt more like he didn't understand the consequences of the fact that he's so focused on this other thing that he wants, that it has this sort of residual effect of rather than being done for his family, it is sort of severing him from his family. I think earlier on in the movie, he doesn't understand the consequences. And maybe if he had understood the consequences earlier on, he would have more openly rejected and dialed it back and not gone all in on the farm as much. I think later on in the movie, he kind of gets pot committed. He invests so much of himself in this that he is more- And financially. And yeah, and financially. He's throwing good money after bad, and he learns about what those consequences will be, choosing the farm over his family. And because he's sacrificed so much for the farm, he's more okay with that at the end of it. I do think at one point- Fortunately, this doesn't happen. I think he gets pretty close to understanding the consequences and being okay with those consequences. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. why he's doing it. I don't think it's his primary motivating factor. So I think, like you're saying, it's a secondary effect. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's interesting, though, about the... I I think you're right that he made... He was so so deep in. Like, these are choices he made early and had blinded him to where he was. Because I think I got to the end of the movie and... My husband and I were talking about just kind of how we felt about like Monica kind of giving him this ultimatum and saying that you abandon our family. And at first I was like, did he really? You know, he was working on the farm and like totally understand. But I was kind of thinking back and it's interesting that like Monica has a lot of perception about what's happening. She knows that he must owe a lot of money. She knows that if they quit the farm, that means they've got a lot to pay back. But she suggests them going to California and she's like, whatever, we pay back our debt eventually. It's okay to give up on this. And I think I I didn't quite, it took me like more reflection to be like, she actually really gets what's going on and he doesn't realize where he, where he is and like just how far gone he is. Yeah. I started out rooting for the dad because, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's pretty excited. You know, he's, he's having fun with the family and their new, their new surroundings. And the mom is kind of the wet blanket early on. And that changes. They almost flip positions by the end where like you're saying, like the mom really understands the the situation and the dad is the one who is getting more and more depressed trying to impose his view over against what's actually happening here mm-hmm. so in the second half of the movie the dad becomes a pretty miserable character that makes some very questionable decisions whether or not he fully grasps the consequences of those decisions he's still doing it wrong i mean obviously we just talked a lot about the parents and so they are equally if not more of the plot line than David and the grandma, which oh. we sort of started off with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, let's bring it back to that. So one major complicating factor to this struggle between the farm or moving back to California and just making money sorting chicks is the son's healthcare costs. And another complicating factor is the grandmother also living with the family, which happens about a third of the way through the movie. And then her having a stroke and also becoming more of a dependent. So these two issues are sort of tied together by the grandmother and the son having a really strong relationship by the end of the movie. Even though grandma is not exactly filling a traditional Korean gender role, she does bring in enough kind of folk wisdom to save the day at the very end of the movie because she's the one who has been planting the titular crop, Minari, which is an herb, that grows everywhere and doesn't require a lot of work to maintain, unlike Jacob's farm. And I think we're given to understand the significant growth of Minari is what's eventually going to financially save this family. Because the farm's not going to cut it, but this Minari is growing all over the place. It's growing like a weed, and they'll be able to sell that to be used not as a food so much, but as as an ingredient in medicine, I believe. Grandma and David's relationship really does end up coming through in the clutch here. And so the the two people who were kind of the greatest sources of stress as dependents eventually becomes sustaining to the family. So that power is kind of made perfect in weakness by the end of the movie. Mm. And the only, the only way that 
that's realized is because the dad accepts it by virtue of his relationship with his wife and the, the tension and conflict they had had. Because if you take dad at half an hour into this movie, I think he would have just turned up his nose at the Minari and he never would have considered harvesting it. Mm. If the grandma had come in and say, I have this uh, Korean folk herb that's used in medicine. Uh, maybe we could plant that. He, he just would have said, no, no, that's ridiculous. Yeah. But by the end of the movie, he, his own self-importance has been challenged so much that he's willing to accept what the grandmother is giving him. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they can support the family. Yeah, I think it's also, you mentioned just the kind of different way it grows. I feel like it's also symbolic that she just found a fertile place. She went looking for a good spot rather than trying to bend the earth to her will, which is Jacob's approach. And I feel like you see this, you know, crop up a lot. It's not just like the folk magic, but the the kind of, there is some, some sort of underlying theme of it doesn't have to be quite so hard. I mean, even with David and like his heart starts healing itself, things that people keep saying like things are going to be okay. And there is a certain element of finding the path of least resistance versus trying to mold everything to be in your way, which I think, you know, as Catholics, obviously, we think a lot about like trying to conform ourselves to God's will or like God has a plan. I need to participate in that plan rather than, you know, being mad at God for not giving me the plan that I want. And it, it feels like a very similar kind of message of, you know, find the fertile ground and use where the water already is rather than, you know, trying to make it happen somewhere else. I think it's interesting, too, that they go to the river. They call it like the Minari water when they run out of water. And so they're like, he's he's always looking for free water. There it is. They had the free water down by the creek. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point. It's not found by either of the two ways that are suggested by men in the movie either by mm. Jacob's way of, you know, digging it ourselves or by the, the dousing method, but by, yeah, grandma's way of just going to look for it wherever it happens to be. Um, and I think that relates to um, what Pope Francis talks about uh, when he talks about human ecology, which is something that we should have brought up when we were talking about my neighbor Totoro and the relationship between growth and family life in episode 59. Uh, we should have talked about human ecology more, but it comes up here too, where, to your point, grandma's solution to how to support the family is very respectful of growth and of nature. Whereas, I mean, farming isn't disrespectful, but it is more active and it does involve imposing your will over against your surroundings more, which mm -hmm. is kind of Jacob's problem here. <laughs> and whether it's ecologically related or not. Well, speaking of Pope Francis, should we talk about the religious themes? So yeah, I, I think we can transition to uh, how this movie portrays varieties of Christianity. I think all of which are outside our experience as Catholics. Yeah, incredibly so. You know, I, I think it's funny that this movie is getting such Oscar buzz and portrays Christianity in, the, in a way that is not negative. Absolutely. I think there are three main representations of Christianity in this movie, and they're largely portrayed as foolish, but also not without unique value. Um, so I don't think this movie is really anti-Christian. Um, I don't think anybody could come away from this movie thinking it was anti-Christian. There are three main ways that Christianity pops up in this movie. One is Sunday church. That's the most obvious one. The second one would be the mother's own devotion, where she's teaching the kids a certain way to pray, talking a little bit about heaven. And then the third way is the neighbor, Paul, and his very charismatic individualistic brand of devotion or spirituality where he routinely breaks into spontaneous emotive prayer whether he's out working in the field or at the dinner table or what he calls his church on Sunday because he doesn't go to Sunday church with the rest of them he does his own thing where he literally carries a cross down the road on Sundays and he says this is my church and I don't know about you Kara but I was I was sitting here like bruh what do you think the Eucharist is if not entering into Jesus's passion death and <laughs> resurrection I mean of all of them he seems the most primed to become Catholic yes he definitely would love the mysticism and the visceralness of Lent yeah <laughs> do you even Carthusian <laughs> It's interesting because on the one hand, Jacob so clearly thinks that Paul is crazy. And yes. yet 
he responds to Paul in an interesting way. Paul sort of gives him a little bit of a sob story to convince him to hire him. And he does, which I think is interesting because Jacob definitely wanted to like do it on his own, but he accepts the help of somebody who does seem to know about farming. So the fact that Paul is there giving him real help and then Paul's doing his prayers and stuff all the time. But then sort of interweaving it with advice like, oh, you shouldn't, you should space the plants out further. You want to give them more room to grow. And so there's this kind of interesting thing where Jacob is both like repulsed by Paul and begrudgingly accepts Paul's wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that that he's also the character with this extremely charismatic faith feels like it's both attracting and repulsive to Jacob. This does relate to the writer and director Lee Isaac Chung's own childhood experience growing up in Arkansas in the 80s. So yeah, I thought that the whole movie sort of dealt with that experience of both being an outsider and and also like not seeming to have a real negative commentary about that experience of being an outsider. Yeah, I think there's a significant fear or stress related to being an outsider that more often than not in this movie turns out not to bear fruit, fortunately. I don't know about you, but there were a lot of moments in this movie where I thought, oh, this is where things are about to go really wrong. And then it pulls back from that. So like at one point in the church, the preacher asks if they have any newcomers to stand up and be you know, welcomed. Obviously, the only newcomers in the church are the Yi family. They stand up very reluctantly and you think, oh no, here comes the you know, they're going to get kicked out or segregated or something. And no, actually, everyone's very friendly and welcomes them. And, you know, the mom finally gets some hint at a community after church, you know, with the coffee and donuts. And it all seems pretty much fine. And the, the Christians there are welcoming of outsiders, which is not the stereotype and maybe not a lot of other people's actual experience. But in this case, it works. Yeah. In spite of the grandmother stealing from the collection basket. Well, she was just taking she was just taking Monica's own money back. But yeah, that's yes. right. Yeah, <laughs> just it wasn't as bad as you're making it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another area where I thought, oh no, the preacher's going to see her doing that and kick them out of the church or something. No, nope, no, nope, it's it's okay. Every little thing that goes wrong, you feel like this is what's going to doom the family. And it doesn't, fortunately. Well, if anything, I think it's kind of highlighting the little dramas of family life. Like, ultimately, this is a drama about family life. Right. And the tensions that exist within it and the tensions and triumphs. And I do think that that kind of adds to that where it's like there are so many times in our everyday where, like, something seems like it's a huge deal and then it's really not. And I feel like it kind of plays with you a, a little bit that way of, yeah, like highlighting things that feel like this is because it's a movie, you expect it to be like this great trauma. And it's really not in sort of a what's the word quotidian sort of way. Yeah, exactly. Thankfully, because it would have been too stressful to deal with otherwise, because these <laughs> these characters are rendered with so much detail and they're such real people that if, mm -hmm. if they were to be doomed, that would be severely painful for the viewer. Well, I will say, I think what's interesting is that the moments that do become significant are things that are significant in life. I'm thinking specifically about, you know, the parents essentially like going back and forth on whether or not they're going to separate and mm -hmm. the sort of climax at the end where it seems that they have decided to separate. Right. It's sort of shot in an opposite way where it's so mundane. It's in a parking lot that they're having this emotional conversation it sort of flips it on its head that you're expect you're not expecting the actual most serious conversation to be happening in this particular moment it feels sort of de-dramatized and it's basically the two of them being like yeah we don't agree about how we're going to move forward and maybe we should separate it, it's sort of interesting that like they clearly make an alternate decision further down the road but um I just thought that that was kind of an interesting way that they play with your expectations for like how seriousness actually happens. Yeah, definitely. Because the dad, Jacob, is not going to back down and he's still letting this fear or this insecurity drive him. And they seem to reach a breaking point where the mom is going to take the kids and grandma and move back to California. Um, and Jacob is just going to be alone on this farm and he's sort of going to let this fear of mortality drive him. And when they were talking about this, I remember there was another movie that came out a little 
while ago called Up in the Air with George Clooney and Anna Kendrick, where oh. they talk about the same thing, where I, I looked it up because it, it felt so akin to this, where they're also talking about the balance between work and family and what really matters in life. And Anna Kendrick's character is saying what she thinks is talking about what she thinks is driving men to obsess over their careers so much. If you guys don't grow up, it's like you need to pee on everything. Oh, now who's stereotyping? Fear of mortality. It's like, yeah, you're gonna die one day. And why do you suppose that's singular to men? Probably because you can't have babies. The baby argument. But that rears its head here too, because like dad says, the male chicks can't lay eggs. And then it seems to get worse because they go home more or less with their minds made up to the double wide trailer and they find out that a fire has started because grandma was trying to burn some trash, uh, which is their way of disposing of trash. And the fire spread to like the really dried out grass um, because it's been an extremely like record hot day. Um, and the fire spreads to the storage shed, which contains all of the produce from like their first crop. And the husband, Jacob, goes into the shed to risk his own life to save the vegetables. The wife goes in and joins him, mm. enters into like that really imprudent risk of life and limb to save the vegetables, to save what he thinks is their livelihood. They pretty much fail, but she joined him in it. He acknowledged his failure. And I think in that climax, that's sort of where they are reunited, maybe not in a really lovey-dovey way. But they both accept that they're going to stick with one another, even if their worst fears are realized. She's going down with him, mm -hmm. even if she knows he's going down. And he finally lets go of the produce that he's been trying to create with this farm, because at least he gets, you know, it means being with her and the family. Is that, is that a fair encapsulation of the climax of the movie? I think so. I think that I think that's right. And I I mean it's like what a wonderfully wholesome ending to a story that I feel like nowadays there's so many stories where it's like yeah, they get a divorce and like move on. This one feels far more hopeful about our ability to like pick up our marital obligation. I think it's funny throughout the movie the grandma mentions how they were so in love when they were in Korea and I think from what I've heard from couples who've been married a long time, I think most married couples will probably resonate with the echoes of the fact that like life can wear on people and it's hard and like you have to choose to be in that fight together. And it feels like the majority of the movie, they were not choosing to fight together. They were at opposite intentions, even if it didn't actually like necessarily make them change their mind. It certainly made them realize that they actually did have the same thing that they wanted and that they wanted to be together and try it. Yeah. So I, it's, it's funny. It's not like super explicit after that, that like everything is hunky dory. It just seems clear that like the family is together and they're more open to, you know, they're trying the dousing. They're going to like accept help from others and certainly be more open to the idea that like these sort of faith things, whether it be the Minari or the dousing or whatever, maybe aren't things to be shunned, which I think as a person of faith is like at least a sort of hopeful end of the storyline. Right. Yeah. So after that, that climactic scene, you think, well, okay, they don't have any more livelihood. They got to go back to sorting out chicks, but grandma's Minari has been growing down by the, the water which she found and it's you're you're led to believe that this family is going to be able to make a living off of the title of the movie the Minari which uh, translates from the Korean as uh, water celery and I think water plays like an important symbolic role at many points throughout this movie as we mentioned especially in the first half of the movie they've been trying really hard to find water through various methods uh, he eventually tries to dig a well. The well dries up, and then he has to steal water from the municipal utility line. I don't think he's stealing. I think I think that's their line. He just didn't want to tap into it because you have to pay for it. Oh, he's not stealing? Because I thought... Because oh. she mentions later, she was like, we can't afford the water anymore, and that's why it gets turned off. So the well that he digs dries up, and he has to embrace the greater expense of using the municipal utility water line. When Mountain Dew is introduced early in the movie, it's called Mountain Water. I don't know if the water that Jesus gives becomes a spring welling up for eternal life. I think, I think Mountain Dew is like the opposite of that whatever the opposite of that is. College me really seriously disagrees. <laughs> I drink a lot of Diet Mountain Dew in college. 
Terrible for your health. Do not recommend. <laughs> the doctor attributes the sun's heart healing to maybe it was the, these Ozark waters. Though, I mean, it was probably just due to him not pounding a liter of Mountain Dew every day. So that was probably... It does help. And then at the end of the movie, that fire spreads on like this grass, which you're shown looks incredibly dry, tinder basically, and burns down all the vegetables. So even with all that water that he tried to get for himself, it was still all for naught and ended up burning down. And then finally, that Minari water celery grows where the water really is. I think they're trying to say something which maybe isn't directly biblical having to do with water. I think it's more generally water being life-giving, but also water going where it goes and you can't control where it goes. Uh, and so part of living and part of loving in a family is allowing that water to go where it'll go uh, and not trying to impose your own path for that water or trying to create it where it doesn't exist. So, good, Brad, I need to know, did you get any, like, Terrence Malick vibes when you were watching this? I feel like... Oh, gosh. It wasn't quite as, you know, ethereal as, as Terrence Malick, but there were lots of little, like, vignettes and, you know, like, camera angles that definitely felt very uh, Malickian. That's such a good point. I did not <laughs> think of that at all when I was watching this movie. And I'm kind of glad I didn't, but you're absolutely right. Loving shots of nature and flashbacks to early family life and people alone in a field. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's very Terrence Malick. Uh, I think Terrence Malick is a very artsy director known for The Tree of Life and also uh, more recently A Hidden Life, which our sister podcast uh, Freedom First did an episode on. Yeah, Terrence Malick very known for some of these hallmarks that also show up in this movie as well. But he he's also I think it's interesting that Terrence Malick does deal with faith and religion in a very favorable way quite often. Yeah. I mean we've talked about this movie seems to also have that kind of feel. This movie also seems to struggle a little bit with like what exactly uh is my plot line, not as much as Malick, but it did take me a little bit to be like I think I get where this movie is going now. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Definitely better than, than Tree of Life, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I think we can wrap it up there. Next time we are going to be discussing chapters five and six of Edward Sree's Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. So be sure to join us for that. Uh, as always, Kara, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Please share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on iTunes, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks to Alejandro Del Pozo for the use of our theme music, and to Fulton Sheen for our sign-off. Bye now, and God love you.